The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to the 18th Psalm, Psalm chapter 18. Uh, Tonight we're continuing in our series uh, through the Psalms. So we finished Psalm 17 last week, and this week we're breaking into Psalm 18. Uh, Psalm 18 is one of the longest Psalms with a total of 50 verses. So uh, I hope you brought a snack because we're going to be here for a while. Uh, I'm also looking for a volunteer to read this entire Psalm out loud. I'm just kidding. Actually, Uh, We're only going to take the first six verses tonight. I saw one hand in the back, and I think that was out of obligation. Uh, I'm not going to make anybody read 50 verses, and we're not going to actually study them all tonight. We're going to break this up. It'll take us four weeks uh, to get through Psalm 18, okay? So, yeah, we're going to take it low and slow, just like good barbecue, all right? So here we go. Uh, This psalm, it also has one of the longest descriptions ahead of it, uh, which helps us know some of the background and the motivation for it. Uh, This psalm is also almost identical to something that David sang at the end of his life, is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 22. So uh, if tonight isn't enough for you, go dig in 2 Samuel a little bit and and get the uh, repeat, okay? Uh, So here's the description. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, some translations where it says choir director, there will be some of you that may have a Bible that says the chief musician instead of choir director. Now, there are some who think that this is a reference to God himself, right, as the chief musician. It's not totally clear if this is the case, but I think it's fine to say that it wouldn't be a wrong designation uh, to call God the chief musician, as he is the one who created all music, uh, and he is the one who's given us the ability to make music and enjoy it, and so... Uh, that's, I think, just interesting to think about, as, uh, of God as the chief musician. So we have David here uh, with much passion and zeal, praising God for deliverance from the hand of his enemies. So let's read Psalm 18, uh, verses 1 through 6 together, and, and we'll all see what the Lord has for us. Okay, so I'm in Psalm, as I said, chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Praise God for his word. Now, have any of you ever heard somebody who is, they're clearly just like a fanboy or a fangirl, and they go on and on about someone that they admire, and they're just gushing, right, with enthusiasm as they explain how awesome this person is that they are enthralled with. And how you also should think that that person is that awesome. That is basically what we have here in the first three verses, at least, of Psalm 18. Except, in this case, it is not 
awkward or cringy as it can be sometimes, because as over the top as this praise may seem, it still falls immeasurably short of describing how truly awesome God is. Hopefully, we find ourselves frustrated often with the limitations of human language as we are overwhelmed with the desire to declare the supremacy and sovereignty and majesty and excellency of our perfect, holy, and loving God. Now, as we see David here reaching for words to describe God's faithfulness to him, hopefully we are encouraged and challenged. It it could be easy for us, though, as we read this, to just see these different words as simply synonyms for the same thing, right? He's talking about refuge and and fortress and rock and strength, all these different words. But uh, there and there is some overlap to be sure. But it is really worth us taking a look at them to draw out the differences, the nuances between them, and to join in in celebrating the multifaceted faithfulness and provision of God. And so the first thing we see him say, starting right off the bat in verse one, is, "I love you, O Lord. I love you." Oh Lord. Now, as, as we're going to see in the rest of this psalm, David has many reasons to declare his love for God. But friends, don't we have so many more reasons than he possibly could have? David had seen God's faithfulness and goodness in so many ways, yet we have seen the fullness of his love towards us in Christ. I'm going to read you a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 4. This starts in verse 9. It says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sins. I wonder how often with heartfelt sincerity we utter These simple words in prayer to God. Oh Lord, I love you. The reality is though the scriptures do not allow us to rest with simple words. How often, friends, do we show God with our lives how much we love him? And some of you might be thinking, I hope some of you are because it's a really good question. Well, how is it that we show God we love him? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to read some verses to you. It's going to be the verses that surround the verses I already read. This is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. And uh, as I read these to you, I'm going to ask you to not simply listen to them, but to soak in all of their profound significance. Because every sin and sinful tendency that entangles our feet is answered in these verses. Every marriage issue we struggle with ultimately boils down to this. Every conflict can be soothed. Every anxiety answered in these few precious scriptures. These verses that I'm about to read you, they sum up what it means to live as followers of Jesus. And they give us the keys to undo the many shackles that we sometimes willingly wear. And so, as I told you, it's 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. May you soak in these and not just hear them. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not 
know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And so why were we there? And we could spend years there, to be quite honest, but why were we there? We were there to answer the question, how do we show God we love him? The way we show God we love him is by taking the love we've received from him and pouring it out onto others. It's a very interesting verse in the midst of that set of verses. It says, no one has seen God at any time. It's like, what does that have to do with this incredible dissertation we're getting on love? This, this beautiful understanding of where the source of love is and how it is we're supposed to respond to God's love. Why does it say in the middle that no one has seen God at any time? Well, he's making the point <laughs> that the way we show God practically in a tangible way, our love for him is to, is to take that precious gift of love he's poured out on us and, and pour it out on others. And I just want to say this. It is okay if you think at this juncture that I've overstated the scope of how love answers all things. But I promise you, if you will take whatever sin you're fighting against or struggle you are facing in this life, and you will run it through the grid of God's love for us and our call to love others, you will find that it brings an answer. Now, if you try that, and it doesn't seem to hold true, you can't get the dots to connect, I would encourage you to talk to those in your community group about it. If the dots still don't connect, I welcome you to reach out to me, and I would be happy to pray, walk, and think through that with you. Because it is clear throughout the scriptures. Paul said, all of the law can be summed up. We'll fulfill the whole law in Romans 13 if we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. When Jesus was questioned, what's the most important commandment? He drilled right down into this, to love God and to love others. It all comes back to this. Very interesting, David starts this way. I love you, O Lord. And I think we should push ourselves in a healthy way. First of all, to ask, how, how often in prayer am I, just, am I just overcome with love for God that I declare it in this way? And how often am I so overcome with the love of God that it, it affects not only my everyday, day-to-day -day relationships, but the stranger that I walk by. 
This is the call of God. This is what he's, as he's grooming us and changing us and conforming us into his image, it is an ever-increasing image of love. We're being made more and more like him, and I'm so thankful that he's patient and long-suffering in that process because I fall short of perfect love quite often. I assume you do too. Now, he then moves into all these synonyms we talked about, right? So we're going we're gonna to look at these, we're going to see how they overlap, but also how there's distinctions and why this is not just David and his exuberance using a bunch of synonyms, but there's, there's nuance between them and there's difference in what he's saying. And so the first thing he says, he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength, my strength. And, and God is the one that empowered David to survive against and defeat his enemies. But for us, friends, how precious of a truth is it that our victory is not dependent upon the finite frailty of our own strength? How many of you have either audibly said or at least thought in that inner monologue as we're struggling through life, I can't do this anymore. I'm at my breaking point or I'm at the end of my rope. Pick your analogy, but how many times do we get there? And, and, and it, it feels like this kind of fatalistic just end to the discussion. I, I, I can't do it. Well, friends, here's the beauty. God knows. You're right. You can't. Praise God you finally realized that. This was never about your strength. It's about his. And so when we connect that phrase, whatever your phrase is, I can't do this anymore, or I'm at the end of my rope, or I just, I can't take it anymore. If, if you're connecting that to whatever situation you're struggling through, and in your own mind, that means this is done, I, that we can go no further, it's over. Really, functionally, what you're saying is, God's strength is not enough. You may not be connecting those dots, but that, that is the reality of the situation, because this was never about you. Your frailty is well noted. From Genesis to Revelation, your inability has been clearly stated. It's not about you. Praise God. <laughs> Woo, I'm real glad about that. Because my finite frailty is evident. Basically on the hour, right? Amen. But David declares that his strength is found in God. The next thing he says is, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. And this, this, this idea of rock, it, it indicates a few things. First of all, it's, it, it, to, to an, an ancient person that would be reading this, a rock or a rocky outcropping, it would be potentially a place of safety, a place of shade from the blazing sun. It could have, it could have little caverns in it, which could be a place of refuge. And so that idea is in play here as he talks about a rock. But uh, in, in, in the NASB down lower, he says rock again. It's almost like it looks like he ran out of words. And we're going to talk about it in a second. Other translations will use the word, a, a different word there, and we'll, we'll look at that. But that word rock is very loaded. So it can be a place of, of refuge, like, you, you know, Moses in the cleft, that, that type of deal. But also it can be a reference to like a foundation, like a firm place to stand upon which to fight from, right? So not... not uh, 
so much as shelter in that place, but it's a, it's, a, it's a firm place for your feet so that as you're doing battle, it's not like sinking sand, right? It's, it, it harkens, Jesus tapped into that idea when he talked about wise and foolish builders that build their life either upon sand or upon rock, Christ being that rock. And so these are the ideas that are coming through, right? And so we're already seeing, he said strength and he said rock, and you say, oh, well, he's really saying the same thing, but man, he's saying a lot of things. He's saying a lot about who the Lord is. And what he does. The next, the next word he uses is fortress. And a fortress is a, it's a, it's a place of strength. It's a place of safety. It's a place where hopefully there's camaraderie. And so he's declaring in another word picture this idea of God as, as, as strong and safe and providing those things for us. When, as, as he'll say in a few verses, the world seems unsafe. He talks about the death of, she, or the, 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 the cords of Sheol, and he's talking about ungodliness all around and, and how it was terrifying. And if we're honest, the world can be that way. Sometimes the, the dialogue in our own mind can be that way. But God is a strength and a rock and a fortress to us. The next word we see here is his deliverer. His deliverer, the, the one who made a way of escape for him. Not just his strength, not just his rock, not just a strong place to fight from, not just a refuge, but a deliverer who in action comes and does what he cannot do. Whew. I need a deliverer. We need a deliverer. You need a deliverer. Praise God that he is one and faithful to do it. Not slow in his deliverance, but always right on time. says, my God. <laughs> He's talking about God as, as strong, tight, you know, looped in with the context of everything else he's saying, and, and also the object of his adoration. My God, my King, the sovereign over me. There's safety in that, that his God is the strong God, the rock, the fortress, and he's my God. Here in the NASB, he says, my rock, again. And that's, that's, a, that's a good translation. It's a good literal translation. Um, and, and you get the nuance of some of the differences that I gave you in, in those two words. Some translations have chose to put strength here. And what that's conveying is it's strength different than... the where he talks about it at the beginning. It's, it's strength as in like, what's the best way to say it? Like a fountain, like a source, like the head of a river. Like it's not going to run out. It's strong in knowing that it's consistent, right? Like, like the, the idea of an ever-flowing fountain. And so it's not, we're not going to run out of resources here, and there's a strength in that. So it's got, it's, it speaks not only of God's might, but God's infinite nature. That you're not going to exhaust him. He's strong in endurance. I'm glad he is. I'm glad he is. The next thing he says is my shield. It's interesting. The shield primarily is used to protect the head and the torso. And so we've got the mind 
and the heart. And the Bible has a lot to say about protecting those two things, and those two things being a battlefield on which much of our life is fought. What happens in our thoughts, what we allow to happen in our thoughts. This is going to rule a lot, and it's going to, it's going to determine a lot about how life goes, about what we think about God, what we think about us. If we let God's word shape our thinking, or we let the culture or our own set of ideas or our experience primarily shape our thinking. But this God is a shield who he cares about our thought life. He cares about what's going on between our ears. And he speaks much to that, not, not just in this illusion here by David, but all through the scriptures. The Bible tells us in multiple different ways. It says to take every thought captive that is contrary to the word of God. That takes an exceptionally high level of discipline because most of us, if we're honest, have thoughts running through our head and it's kind of a background thing. We're not even really checking it. We're just, our brains are just always doing what they do. And many times what is happening is realities are being built in our thoughts that don't reflect actual reality. But if we think those things long enough, if we dwell on those things long enough, we can we can be able to be convinced that things are real that aren't real. And how terrifying is that? Because then you operate, like, you operate out of that. That perception becomes your reality. Thankfully, God built us and knows this. And he's given us wisdom and help in his word to understand the importance of our thoughts. And so for some of us, it's, it's really, it's a matter of just thinking about that, disciplining, and, and actually checking, stopping to think about what you're thinking. What, what am I thinking? <laughs> what, what am I allowing to run through my mind? And it's stopping those, and it's forcing those thoughts to run through the grid and the filter of the word. And the thoughts that don't pass, the thoughts that don't line up with what God has revealed to be true in Scripture, don't get to live in my brain anymore. Now, some, for some of us, it's, it's only that we need to apply that discipline to our thinking. For some of us, there are such deep-seated things that without the help of the Holy Spirit and maybe the help of brothers and sisters in Christ and maybe the help of somebody that's trained to do it, we might need, we might need all of that to, to be able to go back and figure out where we let thoughts that don't reflect reality build constructs in our minds that now we're operating out of. At the bare minimum, the hope is, in, in bringing this up tonight, that we would submit this to the Lord and ask for his help to reveal those things to us. Show us, God, where, where have I come to believe things that just actually aren't true? It takes a high degree of humility also to acknowledge that that's possible. I, I like to think I'm right. How about you? I like to think that my thoughts are pretty trustworthy, that I'm fairly logical in the way I've come up with whatever it is I'm running off of, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I can apply principles of logic and still come up with something contrary to God's word. There's a lot about the gospel that isn't logical. It's foolishness, actually, to the unbelieving. Talking about that God is a shield helping to protect our minds, but, but also our hearts. And the Bible has lots to say about this, right? 
that the, the heart is the wellspring of life. The issues of life flow up out of it. That to not, to not protect, you know, it's, there's, there's one thing that has, it's almost like when, when thoughts are allowed to run long enough in our minds that it builds these constructs, it begins to affect and plant seeds in our heart that, and, and, and it's almost like things sometimes are harder to, to pull out of there than it is even out of our minds. Because once we come to believe something with a deep conviction, and then our emotions get involved with it as well. Uh, man, it can, it can become something that is basically impossible to untangle without the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I think based on some of you nodding, I think I'm not the only one that's experienced that. I'm not the only one that has let something go long enough in the way I was believing or feeling or thinking uh, that ended up doing great damage to me and causing damage to others because uh, I just wasn't careful to let the truth of God revealed in his word about him and about me and about others <laughs> and let his gospel shape and shade and influence the way I'm processing things. Listen, man, life is hard. There's a lot of opportunities for us to think contrary. We have help from our flesh. We have help from the enemy. We have help from the world around us that is broken by sin. We've got lots of other places where counter messages to the truth of God's word are coming and, and would be happy to lead us on a path that strays from the ultimate reality of God's word. There's one source of truth, ultimately, the arbiter of all others, the great judge that is God and his word. And he, is a, he is a strong shield. But like Ephesians 6 says, some of us need to pick that up to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, those lies that come. It can be very easy out of exhaustion or, or distraction or many other really foolish things to, to just set our shield aside and kind of be beholden to whatever comes. Now, this, this, next, this next word or set of words, he says, and the horn of my salvation. Now, this is, this is one that's going to strike our modern ears a little strange, not something that we would use uh, to describe something good or bad, typically. Uh, but what, is, what does this mean? So, when he talks about the horn of his salvation, there's a lot of different meanings. I mean, if there, there's the, in this, as far as the scriptures are concerned, you'll, you'll find a, a spectrum from, if you go to Genesis, you'll see a horn just describing the horn on an animal's head, okay? But then as, as the idea develops through the scriptures, it, it, it begins to have take on this meaning of a horn being like a source of strength and a source of defense. Think of like, and you'll see, you'll see it uh, connected to like an ox, right? So for, you know, a Near Eastern person of this time, I don't know, have any of you ever like seen like a text, a full-grown Texas steer, like that left the, they left the horns on it? I'm talking to like, these are massive animals that just, you know, when you take a look at it, if I tick that thing off or get in its way, it's not a conversation, it's not a fight, I'm trampled and or gored and it's over, right? Like, it's just a massive, like, differential in strength. There's not a question here. This animal would win. It's kind of that idea, okay? So for them, it's like the, the, the horn of an ox, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming strength. There is no fight here, okay? That's the idea that is coming through, one of the ideas that comes through in this. The second way that this, this begins to be woven into 
the, the understanding of, of David, but others in his time and later, is it's the idea of the connection of horns to the tabernacle. So in the four corners of the tabernacle, God instructed them to put horns, and they were covered with brass so as to be able to handle the heat from the flames as, as sacrifices were done. And it's very interesting that God had horns put in the tabernacle. I mean, you know, we associate crosses, and, and you know, you got the Christian fish symbol, and we've got, we've got this and that. that we, it's like, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of a Christian type symbol. No, nobody, I, I haven't seen any Christians running around with like a horn necklace, right? Um, maybe they'll start now. I don't know. You know, someone jump on Etsy and get, get that going. Uh, we, we, don't, we just don't think of a horn so much as something associated with God or God's strength or anything to do necessarily, but it's real, real interesting that David does. The horn of my salvation. It's interesting also that this, also, this ties into, and, and there's, there's an allusion here to the idea of refuge in the tabernacle and with these horns. There's an account in 1 Kings chapter 1 where Adonijah is, uh, basically he's trying to usurp the throne. David's about to die, and he is, uh, he's another one of David's sons, and he thinks he should be king. David has said plainly that Solomon's going to be king, so Adonijah kind of stages this little cue, tries to have a coronation party before anybody realizes what happened, and hopefully just everyone goes along with it, and now he's the new king. And then Bathsheba and Nathan roll into David's chamber. He's super old at this point, about to die, and they're like, hey, didn't you say Solomon was going to be king? And he's like, yeah, I did. Uh, go get my mule, put Solomon on it. He is the king. So basically they do all that. Everybody's now, you know, Adonijah's still trying to pull fast ones with get Jonathan off to the side, see if he can work something. Basically, it comes down, Solomon ends up king, and then, and then homeboy realizes, oh, well, whoops, I'm in trouble. And so the account is that he, out of fear of what Solomon would do to him, he runs to the temple, or to, I'm sorry, to the tabernacle, and he, and he grabs the horns. Almost like, do you, you guys ever seen uh, the cartoon version of the hump, Humpback of Notre Dame? Who's seen that? Esmeralda was in it. It's an old one. It's okay if you haven't. I know I'm getting old. So it's like there was, and I have this vague memory, hopefully I'm, I don't have the wrong movie, that somebody ran into the cathedral there and was yelling sanctuary. That's it's like where this idea comes from. If I go into this holy place, there, you know, nobody's going to come in and strike me down with a sword because I'm in here, right? And so he grabbed those horns and was like holding on to them until somebody said, look, man, it's okay, go talk to Solomon. He's, you know, he might not kill you. It was basically all the guarantee he got, but <laughs> it ended up fine. Solomon let him go home. All right, so... So in that even, there's, there's this hint of this idea of refuge. All of that is contained in the horn of salvation. And, and there's more, but we're going to come back to it as we get to the end of the six verses here. Okay, so the last word we see here is, he says, uh, it's his, that God is his stronghold. Okay, so we've had fortress. What's the difference between that and a stronghold? Well, typically a stronghold would be a high place of refuge, a place set up where that from there you could see the movement of your enemy from afar off. And so that's helpful in the, in, in the reality that God, all through the scriptures, but especially in the New Testament, has told us we, we need to be wise as serpents while we're gentle as doves, that we need to understand the workings and the wiles of our enemy and how he tries to come against us. We, we need to not be fools. We need to not be gullible. We need to be able to see those attacks coming, see those lies coming. And God, he's, he's speaking of the reality of this. Stronghold is, is, again, I mean, the overlap is it's a place of 
if you're in the stronghold and they're not, and you're fighting them, you're in the place of strength. You're in the place of refuge. And so there's overlap there, but the addition here is that in God, he has the ability to, through his wisdom, see the workings of the enemy, to not be taken by surprise. And so, oh, you know, strength, rock, fortress, deliverer, rock or strength, again, refuge, shield, horn of my salvation, and stronghold. It's, it's David just gushing. He's, he's just so overwhelmed with how good and faithful and mighty God has been to him that you see this burst of praise come out in these first three verses. And so uh, that leads us then to the next couple verses where David begins to describe the danger he was in that made him so thankful and so uh, exuberant about God's faithfulness and deliverance. And so verses 4 and 5, it says, The cords of death encompassed me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The torrents of godliness, ungodliness. So that's, I mean, that's like never-ending waves. It just seems like the ungodliness never stops. It says it, he says, it terrified me. The cords of Sheol, another way to talk about the, the, the real possible and, you know, reality and fear of death because of his enemies. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And so here we see David talking about fear from enemies that, you know, th- this, is, this is not just something that's going to potentially harm his spiritual walk or, or his, his life in Christ and, and all of that. Uh, Obviously, it wouldn't be his life in Christ. I'm just now I'm connecting it to you. So it's this isn't just a minor thing. This is this is real deal death at the door. This is actual. What might happen is I get cut down by my enemies. They have they have planned. They have plotted, and they have without God's help probably the fortitude to do this. Death is at the door. Okay, and so. it's, this, this not only, by David describing this, it not, only, it not only describes for us his specific struggle, but really because of the intensity of it, because of the totality of it, the fact that it's, it's real life, like actual death that he's dealing with, it, it really encompasses and can encompass, and, and, and we can relate it to really <clears throat> all the struggles that we face in this world that is broken by sin. Because the reality is, friends, our enemy... The devil, who is real, by the way, he deals in death, and he's always looking to devour. We need to know that idea of, of God as stronghold that allows us to see from afar off the, the maneuvering of our enemy. This is, this is part of what we're doing right now. We need to know that whatever trial you are facing right now, whether it's a result of your own sin it's a result of the sin of others, or it's just because of the general sinful brokenness of this world. We need to know that the ultimate goal of the forces of darkness is eternal death. If you're struggling with family members right now, and, and there's, there's something going on there, and you're, and you're tempted to not walk in love about it, ultimately, at the end of the day, the forces of darkness don't necessarily care so much about your family dynamics. Ultimately, it's about trying to pull you away from the Lord. The enemy deals in death. The wages of sin is death. The forces of darkness are always seeking 
to pull people away from God. And, 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 and ultimately what that is, because, because God is the source of all life, because we were made absolutely for fellowship and relationship with him, to be separated from God is to be spiritually dead. The Bible is very clear about that. But I would just give you the other side of the coin in the hope that, I, praise God, that Jesus came to bring and give life. Satan is always trying to deal in death. The enemy is always trying to push us towards eternal death. But Jesus came both to bring and give life. This is the first verse I ever learned, but man, it's still so good. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Life in Christ. Life in in God. That is what this is always about. It's about life and death. Darkness and light and all these other illusions, really what it is, that's all pointing to this one reality of life and death. God is about life, bringing life, giving life. Satan's a death dealer. And unfortunately, many times we buy what he's selling. The enemy of our souls doesn't care so much about the individual outcomes of the situations you are struggling through right now. What he mainly cares about is destroying your faith and confidence in this one thing. So whatever you're going through right now, whatever the trials are right now, understand this. The goal of the forces of darkness is not even necessarily about that thing. It's about this. Destroying and trying to rob your confidence in the fact that God is worthy of our faith and our trust. Ultimately, through whatever it is you're struggling through right now, the hope of the forces of darkness is to get you, to move you off of that solid rock and that place of trust and faith in God. Because if through pain and struggle or exhaustion or whatever the ploy is, can move you from trust and faith in that, it is by faith that we experience, it is by trust in God through Christ that we have life. That is how the forces of darkness accomplished their campaign of death, trying to pull people into the darkness of a lack of confidence and trust in God. Now, verse 6 is, is beautiful because it points us to the almost inconceivable attentiveness of God. Let's read it. We'll read it some more times, but it says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord he, and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. How many of you who are parents or you're, you have parents, I'm assuming most of you have parents, uh, or somebody that served as a parent, uh, how many of you have seen this scenario run down? <clears throat> mom. Mom. Hey, Mom. Mom, 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 dad, 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 hey, dad, pop, dad, hey, mom, right? You've seen that before. Uh, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> that happens in my house more than I'd like to admit, right? Now, in the defense of Natalie and I as parents, some of that is because of the constant din of mom. Dad, mom, dad, can I have a snack? Mom, hey, dad. You know, at some point, you kind of get desensitized, and, you know, we have this ability to kind of tune it out. 
Um, and I'm, I'm pretty bad at it, uh, but I'm, I'm just going to right now kind of, I'm going to jump on a high horse a little bit and say, I've seen some parents way worse at it. Boy, <laughs> I have seen some parents who their kid, I'm talking 25 times, pulling on the shirt, you know, throwing dirt and sticks at their face to try to get their attention. They can just keep the conversation going, and it's like that child is not saying anything. And I'm like, good Lord. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm ashamed at how many times my kids probably have to say dad five or six times before I, I get jolted out of whatever like thought train I'm in or whatever I'm distracted by. It's pitiful. But here's the, here's the contrast to that, and here's what we're seeing is that God is a really good parent. God is so mighty, and he's so sovereign that I've got two kids, okay, who are constantly pulling at my attention. God's got all of us, and we can all be crying out to him, and he not only hears, but he has the power to answer. And that's what he's pointing out here in verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice from his temple. How? When was the last time just, you just reveled in the fact that as you cry out to God, he hears you? And he didn't just hear. He answered. And that becomes apparent as we move on through verses 7 through 50. I mean, the next, the next whole set of verses that we're going to get into next week is a description of what it looked like as God answered in strength David's cry for help. I'm so thankful God's a better daddy than me. Pray for me. I want to work on it. You know, if it's five or six dads right now, I'd like to get down to two or three. Uh, you know, keep growing by God's grace. But there's, there's also there's, there's something interesting here. that Now, I'm about to thread a needle. I'm about to pull on a string of yarn here that if you've checked out for whatever reason, if you don't come back and like really work with me here, it, you're going to lose it, okay? Because we're going to follow a thought trail here through the scriptures that at the end, there's a pot of gold, but you're going to have to work with me, okay? It's worth it. It's beautiful, but it's going to take it. we got to work a little bit. So <clears throat> David understood God to the degree that the plan of redemption and reconciliation had, had been unfolded to in his time, right? We all experience... We have an experience with the Lord that is it's, it's affected by the time slot in which we live, right? Acts says that God appoints the time and places where we live. He had David born when David was born because David played a, a certain part in God's plan of redemption. And that's true for everybody in the Bible, and, and that's true for you and me. Because God's plan of redemption is still unfolding. It is unfinished. Christ has not returned to claim all those who belong to him. It, it, it's not over yet, right? And so th this whole drama continues. But, but David could only see, I mean, he had some, he had some prophetic vision, right? There's, there's clearly, he, he saw things that maybe he shouldn't have been able to quite understand uh, with God's help, but, but he was still locked into time, and he still could only see what he could see. He could only understand God the way he could understand him. In, in David's time, God dwelt in the tabernacle, okay? Now, and in David's time, there was discussion of the building of a temple, okay? So the tabernacle existed, there's a discussion of the building of the temple, but it had not been built yet, right? In David's time of the temple, it's Solomon that builds the temple, right? Because God tells David, you, you've got too much blood on your hands, brother. You're not going to do it. Solomon's going to do it, okay? So the temple had not been built. So, but what is, but what is he talking about here? He says, he heard my voice out of his temple. 
So David must have been referencing God's heavenly dwelling as this temple. The temple he's talking about is God's heavenly dwelling. And so what he's doing here is he's rejoicing in the truth that God could hear him from there. Amen? That's good. And as he continues through this psalm, he lays out that God not only heard his cry, but came to his aid. And so that's verse 6 is him rejoicing in the fact that God, from a heaven all the way from this heavenly temple, would hear him and would come to his aid. And this is awesome. This in and of itself is awesome to think about, right? The God of the universe hearing our cries for help and coming to our aid. But, friends, this is just the shadow of things to come. As we pull on this thread, we're going to be able to see the prophetic beauty of David referring to God as the horn of his salvation. I told you we'd come back to that horn of salvation, that kind of weird language. We explained it a little bit, but there's, there's something in here. I'm telling y'all, this is good. Okay, so here, here we go. The instructions for the horns of the altar that I told you about, that marked out the four corners of the tabernacle, those are found in Exodus 27, as God lays out and gives the dimensions and all of the specifics for how the tabernacle is to be built, okay? Now, in, in worship in the tabernacle, the horns of the altar were dabbed with blood to purify them and to make atonement for sin, according to Leviticus 4 and 8, okay? So the description of the horns being in the tabernacle, that's Exodus 27. The instruction that these horns were to be dabbed with blood for the atonement of sin, Leviticus 4 and 8. Now, here... In Psalm 18, David calls God the horn of his salvation. All right? Now, in Luke 1, Zechariah, Bible pop quiz, who's Zechariah? That's John the Baptist's dad, who, when Gabriel the angel came and said, you're going to have a son, he's going to be a forerunner, going to walk in the spirit of Elijah, going to do all these things, going to prepare the way of the Lord. Zechariah wasn't quite sure about that, and Gabriel said, hold on, son, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God you're not going to talk for a while, right? Like, so if Gabriel shows up to you, uh, just listen to him, all right? And, and don't ask a bunch of questions. Just shut your mouth, okay? Now, so, so he's, Zechariah's struck dumb, but then, but then John is born, and, and, and uh, you know, he, <clears throat> they, they, try to, they try to name him Zechariah after his father, and he writes on the tablet, no, his name is John, in obedience to what Gabriel had said. His tongue is loosed, and then uh, he gives something called what, what has been commonly referred to now as the Benedictus, okay? So basically it's this kind of poem, song of praise, kind of like Mary's Magnificat. And, and in Luke 1, in that Benedictus, Zechariah says this, starting in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. Now, what is Zechariah talking about? Zechariah is talking about the fact that John, his son, he's not, he's not talking about John, he's talking about the one whom John is preparing the way for. So he is pointing to Christ and calling him now the horn of salvation. So we got the horns in the tabernacle, we got David calling God a horn of salvation in Psalm 18. Now we got Zechariah taking all that and he's putting this language upon this Messiah who's coming. Now, okay, why am, I, why am I doing this? Part of why I'm doing this, why I'm, I'm going to connect all these dots for you, is because I want, I want you to, I, this, stuff like this can help us 
put to bed those nagging doubts or even the voices of haters that would come and say, try to say that the Bible is just constructed by some wise old ancient sages and they've tricked us, they've duped us over the last thousands of years and whatever. Here's the thing, man. Here's what we, here's what we need to understand. <laughs> Zechariah, in calling Jesus the horn of salvation, could not have in his mind been referencing the idea of those those horns in the tabernacle being dipped with blood for atonement. That, that couldn't be what he's talking about because in Zechariah's mind, there's no way he would have been thinking about that. He would have been thinking about the horns in terms of ox horns and strength because what everybody thought Messiah was going to come do was come bring national salvation, that now we're not going to be under Roman rule. Now the nation state, the, the people of God, Israel is going to be saved and redeemed, and what they thought that mostly meant was saved from our enemies, much the same way David was talking about it. People constantly trying to subdue us and hold us down, that we're going to be free to worship God, just like when Moses was sent to free him from Egypt so that, you know, let my people go so they can come and worship me. That is the way he would have been thinking about it. So what, so what that means, is, and here's the thing, so Zechariah and the disciples, I mean, even up until the day of the cross, when Jesus kept saying, look, I'm going to have to suffer many things. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, he's laying it out for him with this. Nobody was going to associate blood sacrifice with, with the Messiah until the cross happened. And they were still trying to figure it out. How does the Messiah dying lead to this redemption we've been looking for? They didn't see the plan, man. And that's what I'm trying to say to you is what how could the wise sages put all this together? Spanning over thousands of years, you got, the, you got the blood on the horns in the tabernacle, you got David talking about it, and then you got Zechariah referencing it, and Zechariah, and what he said, he, he, couldn't, have even, he couldn't have even understand that, that what the Messiah was going to do was bleed to save them. He couldn't have connected the dots. We can. <laughs> Anyways, the Bible's awesome. I don't know how excited you are about it, but I'm real excited about it. I hope you get that way in the next five minutes or so. All right. So that, that horn of salvation that Zechariah is talking about, the, the final fulfillment of what the horns in the tabernacle were pointing to is Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the whole, God constructed the tabernacle, and there's, we could spend all kinds of time talking about all the foreshadowing that's in the specifics of the way the tabernacle was laid out. But these horns... Now, I know this is weird for you because you don't think about horns and God. I get it. I don't either until I started digging into Psalm 18. I'm like, hold on a second. God's mighty like some ox horns, man. <laughs> Woo, I'm happy about it. Get out the way. Get run over. Don't get in front of him. <laughs> now, David was excited that God would hear from heaven and help him. Hear from heaven and help him. But God's intention was always to go farther than that, okay? Remember, horns in the tabernacle, David's deal, Zechariah's deal, it all ties together. In John 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means that he came and tabernacled with us. And so what we see is that far more than providing a tabernacle we can run to, like homeboy who was afraid of Solomon, Far more than providing a tabernacle we can run to, God has brought the tabernacle to us. Far more than providing us refuge here on earth, 
Jesus left the refuge of heaven to come and be our refuge. That's why he is the horn of salvation. All of the strength and the protection, all of the ideas that come in that idea of a horn of salvation, in David's mind and in Zechariah's mind, that's all true. And it's even more than that. Not only did Jesus come and walk among us, but now he has made us his dwelling place and he's promised to walk with us through every trial. And so here's what I'm getting. Here's the big point. We don't call towards heaven hoping God will come and help. God has come and is forever with us. The horn of salvation has come. <laughs> Hallelujah. We don't utter prayers hoping that they reach heaven and hopefully that God's not busy and hopefully he'll respond to us like he did to David. If there was any doubt in David's mind or anybody else's mind of God's faithfulness or that he was going to do what he said he's going to do, all of those doubts are erased in Christ. He said, God, you're the horn of my salvation because he had had an experience where he cried out in the midst of desperation. The cords of Sheol were around him. Ungodliness, torrents of ungodliness. And he cried out to God and God responded and he saw God's faithfulness. But we could, we could all just stop there and think, oh, well, God really liked David. It's pretty clear, right? David was God's guy, showed up for Goliath and the whole deal. But what does that mean for me? You could, you could live in that doubt, except for Jesus, man. Jesus came to erase the doubt that God is for you and with you. And he's not only going to answer your prayer because he'll hear you when your prayer reaches heaven. He left heaven so that all you got to do is, is pray and know he's right with you, man. There's no distance. I will be with you even to the end of the age, was the words of our master before he ascended. I'm going to send you a helper. I know you wish I could stay here, but I'm going to do even better than me walking here in the flesh. I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you. <laughs> Come on. And as amazing as it is to understand the privilege we have today as followers of Jesus to be indwelt by the spirit of God, to have the very horn of salvation with us, as amazing as that is, it's not the end. This redemption plan is not fully unfolded. There will come a day when we will enter that eternal temple of God. Not because we've earned the right to stand before him, but because we've trusted by faith that Christ earned that privilege for us. And friends, on that day, on that great and glorious day, all our struggles and strivings cease. And we will bask in the glorious radiance of God's perfect presence, unhindered by the sin or any other barrier that has held us back. Ever again. Hallelujah. But until then, we continue living and walking in the love of God and declaring the good news of his gospel with our life and with our words we're doing this for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for Psalm 18. Thank you that you did deliver, David. Thank you that you are our strength and our rock and our stronghold and our fortress and our refuge. 
Thank you, God, that you're all these things, and, and, you're, and you're more than that. These are just our pitiful attempts with human language to describe how good and wonderful and perfect you are, how mighty you are, how excellent and majestic you are. But, God, we will always fall short in trying to describe you. Language can't contain you. But, God, may we be, may we be pushed and prompted as we consider these things, as we guard our thoughts and, and throw away useless things, and we set our minds upon heavenly things, and our, our, our minds and hearts are focused upon the beauty of your gospel, all that you have done and all that you are doing, and we are overcome and overwhelmed with love and gratitude for you. God, may our lips be filled with your praise. God, may we stretch the bounds of creativity to describe how wondrous and beautiful and perfect and good you really are. For you are a glorious master, worthy of a people who would declare often, with sincere hearts. Oh Lord, we love you. And you are worthy of a people who would not stop with our lips, but would move forward and live out of that love, taking the love that you have first given to us and pouring it out on others in obedience to you and understanding that that is the way you have chosen to see your kingdom go forward. Thank you, God that you've made us ambassadors of your gospel, but also ambassadors of your love, that you've called us to reflect to this world the light and the beauty and the precious nature of your love. God, we know that even all that you've told us in your word, if we were to, if we were to memorize everything you've said about love in your word, if we, were to, if we were to think on it for all the 70, 80, 90, or 100 years you give us on this planet, we would but scratch the surface of the depth of what it actually means when you say, you are love, that you have loved us. God, it's so deep and so wide. I thank you that for eternity we're going to drink from that well and the water's going to get sweeter and sweeter. Thank you that we'll never exhaust you. Thank you that you are as mighty as you are and yet when your children call, you're not distracted with someone else's issue, <laughs> but in might and power. You hear and you respond. And I thank you, God, that today we're not calling to some heavenly temple hoping that you'll hear us, but you have promised to be with us, that you dwell in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you've closed the distance, that you left the refuge of heaven to come and provide us refuge here. Thank you, Lord, you're a rock that moves with us. You are so good and you are so perfect. God, we need your help. We need your help not to be distracted with the trappings of this world. We need your help to set our eyes, our minds, and our hearts upon the things that would lead to us having exuberant outbursts of praise as we see in the first six verses of Psalm 18. God, we want these things to mark our life. God, may we not be able to contain ourselves as we think about how wonderful you've been. And may this result in your glory and fame as your people praise you with their lips and with their lives. We love you. We thank you for your help in these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org